Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January 15th, 2014. This is episode 1280 of the Survival Podcast, and I've got an awesome one today. I actually got three emails today going, Jack, will you please do... A show about saving seeds. And the reality is I did one yesterday. Wait a minute. Yesterday was on mass casualties. No, the show you heard yesterday was on mass casualties. That was actually done last week when I had that interview on a Thursday, which is why we didn't have a standalone show on Tuesday this week. Yesterday afternoon, after I got done putting that show up for you, I got on the phone with an awesome guy. His name is Stephen Scott, and he is from terroirseeds.com. It might sound familiar to you because they're a supporter of the Member Support Brigade, offering you guys a discount on their great products and incredibly diverse line of heirloom seeds. He's going to be with me in just a moment. We're going to talk all about seed saving and soil care and other things like that and being self-sufficient and understanding the difference between being self-sufficient with your seed saving versus this, the concept of being like totally 100% self-sufficient, never buying a seed from anybody again, and why that really isn't realistic for most gardeners and small-scale producers, but why you may want to select certain seeds for saving. We'll have all that in just a moment. Before we do that, though, Let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, BulkAmmo.com. That's the company that can help you shore up that one uh, edge of the triangle of gun operator efficiency known as ammo. you got to have ammo. Let's say you are a well-trained gun operator. Let's say I give you a gun. And let's say I give you no ammunition and you have no access to ammunition. Do you know what you have? Unless you can pull off bluffing in the right situation, you have an overpriced club that would likely get you killed by someone that does have a gun. That's what you have. You have to have all three to be proficient with a gun. If I send you to the woods even to hunt deer and I give you a gun with no ammo, you're better off making a sharp stick or an atlatl or something like that. you got to have ammo. If you want to be an effective operator of your firearm, you need to train. And we can only do so much with dry fire drills and things like that. You need to train with live ammo as well. That's why you need to get over to BulkAmmo.com and stock up today. BulkAmmo.com has all the common calibers. They do have stuff in stock. Check them out. BulkAmmo.com. Remember, if you're placing an order, I think it's over 200 bucks. They have a special deal for you in the Member Support Brigade. Always check the MSB first to see if a sponsor has a deal for you. Not all sponsors have deals, but most do. And if there's not a sponsor in there with a deal, there might be somebody with a deal for what you're looking for that's not a sponsor, just a supporter of the MSB. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal. Um, Safe Castle is the original survival podcast sponsor. Five years this month. Five years this month, Vic Rental has been supporting this show. Right now I have an awesome plaque being made up for him. It'll be shipped over to me soon so I can make a video so that all sponsors can see what we're going to be doing to recognize their, their five-year mark with the show. And then I'll be getting that up to Vic. That's why you should consider supporting Vic. Five years of supporting the show. Five years of giving away his discount membership club, lifetime membership, to all members of my support brigade. Five years of that. A, a membership worth $49. A membership that makes your first year of MSB a buck. And if you want it, and it's for prepping, they got it. And hey, you know what? If you're thinking, maybe I could consider it like a, a hardened shelter. 
You know, like what they call on TV, a bunker. But maybe for a reason, like you live in the South and they have these things called tornadoes that can bring, you know, ravaging death. And maybe that would be a good reason to have one. They build some of the best hardened shelters you'll find. You can link over to their, their website on shelters from their main website. Uh, and the best way to find their site, if you're going to just type it in, I just find this easier than their name. They have this domain that just really sticks in your head. Prepared.pro. Prepared.pro. But the best way to visit Safe Castle, Bulk Ammo, or any of our sponsors, go to the survivalpodcast.com first and click on their banner or their link. Reason being, some of them have kind of special deals for everybody. You'll find the, the, the deal that way. Um, and that way you know you're dealing with somebody that I actually endorse. Because I don't just endorse anybody. Uh, it's actually pretty hard to become a sponsor on the Survival Podcast. That's why they stick around for five-plus years. Anyway, with that, I want to get into the main topic. I want to start doing something today, and I'll, I'll just use it because we have Steven on today. He's going to be the company. I'm also going to want today just mention a company that's in the MSB that's not a sponsor because I think they deserve the exposure for what they do. Today, that company is Terroir Seeds, and let me tell you what their discount is. Uh, the Terroir Seeds discount uh, is available from them uh, for all members of the Member Support Brigade, 10% off all orders. I'm going to add that. Uh, in most days from this day forward, it'll be so fast. It'll be just already have been done. Uh, just because it's new, I wanted to let you know I'm going to be doing that, but I'm going to be not making the intro a lot longer with this, guys. I understand some of you don't want the intro to be too long. I try to keep it condensed and quick uh, and keep the commercialism up front and make it valuable commercialism that you want to hear about. Um, so that's like in the future, what you're going to hear is uh, our feature discounter today is uh, Terroir Seeds that offers 10% off of all uh, purchases to members, support brigade members. That'll be the whole thing. Anyway, that'll be a perfect segue into me reminding you about the members, support brigade. You can get discounts from Terroir Seeds. You get discounts from Bulk Ammo. Uh, and you get the discount membership from Safe Castle. All three of them are actually supporters today. Uh, check it out. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on members. You can sign up there. 50 bucks a year. Five bucks a month if you want to pay monthly. And uh, you get all the stuff right away. There's no levels or layers or anything to it. And uh, it really does pay for itself. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, prior service, or first responders like EMTs, paramedics, firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a service discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. On that note, I might change uh, service discount to something else. I'm not sure what. I'm probably going to take the word discount out of it. You could use it for now. Um, the problem I have is a ton of it ends up in my junk mail. Even with it, like overrides my Outlook rules for some reason. Um, I don't know why, but I know why they're flagging it. Service discount. That just sounds like spammy stuff. So I may change that in the future. Anybody has any ideas? You can tell me in today's show notes in the comment section. What do you think I should have you put in the subject line that doesn't use the word discount? Like maybe. See, service for Jack would still be, you know, popping the spam filter in Outlook, and I haven't set the minimum. Anyway, not a big problem. I dig them out and find it anyway. I know to look for it. With that, uh, let's get into today's history segment. Uh, the year is 1280 because the episode is 1280. And uh, Alex has once again done a great job of preparing stuff for me. Um, you may burn your books now. In retaliation for embarrassing Christians in a religious debate, the Jews of Spain are required to remove any criticism of Jesus or Mary from the Talmud and to burn the books of Maimonides. Uh, to this day, a Jewish prayer book contains a prayer where one line is never recited because even though it does not refer to any Christian, Christians perceive it as a criticism of them, so the Jews will skip over that line and continue praying in the modern day. 
my uh, brothers and sisters of planet Earth who are of the Jewish faith, stop doing that. If anybody's offended by your prayer, it's their problem. That's that's how I feel about it. Uh, next up, we accept MasterCard, Visa, and your firstborn in lieu of taxes. Magnus III of Sweden established Sweden's first nobility by making a group of people free from taxes. The king issues the decree of As... I can't really pronounce that because there's no vowels in it. A-L... Well, there's a vowel in the beginning. A-L-S-N. Olsen? I don't know. Um, it just seems like there needs to be another vowel in there somewhere. Anyway, which allows noblemen to pay a fee or contribute one cavalryman from his family in lieu of taxes. That would place him on par with the clergy who did not pay taxes either. This group of Swedish nobility are called the Firstly. Firstly. Again, no fur. F-R. L-S-E. Seems like these guys don't like vowels in Sweden. Uh, which means free neck. There's vowel, a vowel in there. It just, again, it's... <laughs> Anyway, the first Lee, I guess, uh, meaning free neck, probably referring to the yoke of government taxes like an ox throwing off his burden and pulling the wagon. Now he gets to ride in the wagon. The wolf at the door. The wolf minimum of solar activity is estimated to have begun on this date. The wolf minimum, also known as the spurrer minimum, marks the beginning of a colder than usual climate. The Little Ice Age, though, is still 70 years away and won't start until 1350 which will be there before you take it, uh, before you imagine. Anyway, Alex has a couple takes on this. Uh, his take on, you may burn your books now, intimidating with violence is not beyond modern day. I was vice president of a religious practices at our synagogue in Orange County, California, when our synagogue was firebombed. In the modern day, luckily, the a-hole messed up the bomb so that it only burned the front part of the synagogue and was easily repaired. We made the news in Israel. Uh, we do what Jews almost never do unless they're Israelis. We developed a security team led by a former Green Beret. We took shifts around the clock watching the synagogue. Were we armed? That would be illegal in California, and it was dark. How would I know? Um, the police supported us. We began check-in, check-out procedure for our children. We hired an armed guard to protect our preschool. We didn't pull back. We leaned forward, and the Christian community supported us. Who did it? A Muslim claimed credit because he didn't like Israel's intervention in Lebanon. You're first born in lieu of taxes. It, it strikes me that modern welfare state has produced a class of people who are exempt from paying federal taxes and act as if they deserve it by virtue of being born or otherwise useless appendages. What better description is there of nobility than that? It's interesting that in, in the time of the king, Magnus in Sweden, that if you didn't want to pay taxes, you purchased your tax-free status. Like a one-time lump sum fee, never pay taxes again. Today, the way you don't pay taxes is to, is to not earn any income and then get money for free. Uh, I disagree with Alex, though. I don't think we've created a class of nobles. Um, now, were the nobles of the days of Magnus kind of parasites? Possibly in some ways and possibly in other ways not. It all depends on how you look at it and understand the, the feudal system of the time. I should say definitely in some ways and definitely in some other ways not. Um, today, though, the welfare state has not created a noble society, and I don't mean the whole, like, the connotation of the word noble, like good, right? But a, a society that you would think of like the nobles of old, it's actually created a, an enslaved society. 
The government welfare program has enslaved millions of Americans into a life of poverty and a belief that's as good as they can do and that they have it coming to them. They actually believe they're entitled to be impoverished. That's where we've gotten as far as I'm concerned. Um, the wolf at the door. This solar minimum is a minor point, but I place it here to remind folks of pending disaster, the little ice age. It wasn't man-made, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. I actually think that people, I don't care what you think about climate change, but I think that if you really believe that whatever we're going to do is going to change the way the climate is going to affect us as far as global temperature, you are about as likely to stop that as the shamans who stood in front of the glaciers and chanted prayers so that the glaciers would recede during things like the Little Ice Age. It didn't work for them. It's not going to work for us. If you're concerned with climate change, um, my suggestion is that you build resilient ecosystems because the climate is going to change. And regardless of what you think the cause is, if we do everything that the people that claim to be fighting climate change want, the climate is still going to change, period. And no matter what we do, we have led ourselves to believe that the climate of this planet is supposed to be straight across a graph. It's not supposed to vary much. Um, we're living in a very moderate climate time in history, very different from most of the history of the planet, and one that has made us very prosperous as a species. To believe that it's just supposed to be that way and stay that way is, is pretty dumb. Again, I don't care what your political views are or your carbon dioxide views are or whatever, The, the belief that our climate is supposed to be stable to, to within a half a degree up or down is, is frankly moronic because there's no evidence to support that. Things like the little ice age, things like solar minimums and solar maximums, things throughout history show us that. So if you're concerned with climate change, build resiliency and build ecosystems that are more able to handle changing climates because climates, frankly, will change. Anyway, with that, I'm ready to get into the main topic of today's show. And I'd like to introduce at this time um, the owner uh, of Terroir Seeds, Mr. Steve and Scott. Hey, Steve, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks so much. It's great to be back. I really enjoy this. Yeah, you were on, uh, it was almost a year ago, I think. And uh, for people that may have not heard that interview, let's start out with kind of Who is uh, who is Stephen Scott, and how did you end up as the owner of a seed company like Terroir Seeds? <laughs> you know, I actually had to look it up. It was episode 974. Well, that's a while uh, ago. <laughs> yeah, we talked about uh, fall and winter gardening at that point. You know, it's funny because looking back, it's been a very precise arc of random points uh, that has led us to, to this point. Um, one being interested in good food, um, another working with local ranches in Arizona on habitat restoration, rangeland restoration, um, studying Alan Savory's methods for 20 years, and really coming to see that the soil is really the key, you know, one of the very foundational keys to everything. You can have really good seed and poor soil, and you're not going to get much. But you can have really good soil, mediocre seed, and you're still going to get some pretty pretty amazing things. So in 2008, when the housing market and the car market and all that started to crash, we 
we were dissatisfied. I was dissatisfied with my job and realized that there was an opportunity there. I could either just jump into another job or sit back for a little bit and really figure out what was driving me and what my passions were and what my mission, if you will, is. And so the summer of 2008, uh, a lot of brainstorming, and we kept coming back to gardening, farming, ranching, and that, you know, and that's where the seeds came through. Um, and once we made that decision, a number of events happened that uh, mentors showed up, um, another seed company, and that's what Underwood Gardens is. Uh, it was an established seed company, came for sale, and they were doing a lot of what we wanted to do, and we could see where we could expand on what they were doing. So all of these coincidences came into being, and it really told us, okay, this is the right direction for us. So almost, well, we're starting our sixth year right now. Um, here we are. It's very cool. And could you talk a little bit about the name itself, terroir? Yes. Terroir is a French word, and if we have wine snobs among the community, um, you know, they're going to recognize that because the wine community uses terroir a lot. It just means the taste of something that's grown in a particular place. Originally, prior to the 1830s, it was an agricultural term in France. And once Champagne became world famous, the wine community, the Champagne community, started using that word to really describe why French Champagne was so different than American or Spanish or Portuguese or South American Champagne. It's kind of come back to the agricultural community at this point, which is nice. The way that I explain it is McDonald's would have you believe that a carrot's going to taste the same, whether it's grown in the sandy soils of Florida, the, the heavier, richer, mineral-rich uh, earth in Minnesota, um, or you know the, the clay loam in California. And immediately we know that that's not correct, uh, and that's what terroir really is. It celebrates the fact that if you and I lived four miles apart, planted the same carrots the same day out of the same packet, they're going to taste different, and they should. And that's really what terroir is. Yeah, I mean, in the wine industry, there are people that are so in tune with, with taste and aromas and characteristics, and it's not me, but there are people that can do this. that can not only tell you, uh, let's say, the vintage and, and, and the grape variety and the, the, the company that made the wine, but they could tell you, well, this wine is from their east slope versus their west slope. Right. And that's, that's terroir. And that's, that's to a level that you and I probably just have more important things in our do in our lives than to go through that much effort. But there is a unique characteristic to food and mass produced food. The way they give us the uniformity is an amalgamation. They take the <laughs> stuff that's from everywhere and they mix it to the point where it becomes uniform because the consumer has been told this is what you should want. Whereas that's why, to me, even when you go to even a regular restaurant, but it's a family restaurant and they make you a hamburger, it has that unique flavor that you associate with that establishment, mm -hmm. and, and and that's that's what you know terroir is to a you know to a simplistic level. And I love the way you guys have played off that with seed because if we're going to be saving our own seed, which we're about to get into, and growing our own vegetables, we shouldn't want to grow a carrot that tastes like it came from Albertsons, right? It's a lot of work to produce that carrot. We can save some money if we get into a really refined system and all, but in the end, there's still work involved. 
Um, if we're going to be producing this higher quality food, it should have a higher quality flavor. And if it doesn't, then maybe we're not succeeding in our goal of producing something of higher quality. Right. Something that you really touched on that I, that I think is very important and a lot of people don't uh, realize is our taste, our sense of taste is a lot more highly developed than we think. And what I mean is, you know, in your comment of, you know, somebody who can, who can recognize the different flavors, that is absolutely true, but there's a, there's a local Arizona winery, um, who has been just doing some amazing things, and he did a wine tasting, um, for a group of fairly uneducated people as part of a fundraiser. And he took six different wines from California that were all grown within, I'm going to say, about 10 miles of each other. Some of these wines were only grown a mile from each other. And he would introduce it and let these just fairly average people taste it. And without having a refined and trained palate, you could taste the differences even two miles apart, the same grape harvested the same day, um, fermented the same way. Hmm. So our, you know... Yes, we've lost bitter, we've lost sour, we've lost some of these other just because of the amount of sugar in our diet, but we still have um, a pretty refined sense of taste once we start exercising it. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think when you stop eating all the processed crap, it comes back. <laughs> and what's funny is then the processed crap tastes like processed crap. I know when I kind of went full tilt with the paleo thing and went to meat and vegetables and fruits and nuts, and that was about it. And I tried to do to eat either what I was producing or the uh, most natural food I could get. Every once in a while, I'd be like, you know, I want to, I want to just blow it out today. I'm going to go to Cracker Barrel and a big mm. pile of chicken fried steak and gravy and biscuits. Like the first time you do it, you're like, oh man, I miss this. And you know, a couple of years into it, you go and you do that, and you just say to yourself, well, they they didn't do a really good job today. Right. And then so you know, you do it one more time a few months later, and you go, okay, it's not them. This doesn't taste good anymore. And, and you wind up not feeling good later. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Well, when you do get into producing your own food, there are some expenses. And thank God people buy seeds, or you wouldn't have great companies like yours, because that's how you stay in business, is people doing business with you. And it's, it's interesting, though, that a seed company... You know, kind of completely, completely counterintuitive to, to industrial processing mentality would tell its customers to save seed. Why? Why do you feel? You know, every time you somebody saves a packet, uh, you, they buy a packet of seed from you. They put it in the ground. They grow something. They choose to save it, and then next year they don't, they're not relying on you for that particular variety anymore. Why are you encouraging people to save seed when it would seem counterproductive in, in you know modern business philosophy? I guess. Well, from a greedy business philosophy, you're absolutely right. But when when you look at it, there's and I and let, we're going to back off and take about a thirty thousand foot view of of this whole thing of a, a seed economy and a food economy. Um, to have a really healthy and robust seed economy, it can't just be the seed companies producing all the seed. Um, but conversely, you know, there's there's kind of a little bit of a movement afoot of, you know, well, all the home gardeners should just save their own seed and those evil seed companies would go out of business. And <laughs> that's false as well because, it, you know, and we're going to get into it and look at it, but a home gardener, unless that's all you do, you can't save and produce enough of your own quality seed 
to make it worthwhile and to to do the quality that you need to. So there's three levels to this, and interestingly enough, the foundation is the home gardener. It's not the seed company, um, and, and I'll show you why. Then it's your regional, local, national seed exchanges um, and Seed Savers Exchange. I'm going to be mentioning them a lot today. Um, they're an easy example to point to as a national seed exchange. But then you have your seed companies, and some of them are going to be regional. Some of them are going to be national. But if you don't have all three levels, you're going to lose your local seeds. For instance, there's a, a bean called a turkey craw bean. Uh, it's very similar to the mustard or goose bean. It was found, you know, shot turkey was shot. They were cleaning it. These beans were in the craw. It's only grown in three counties in Kentucky. Okay. Now, as a, a seed company, that particular seed may or may not be of enough interest to my national customers for me to carry it. But if those individuals on the ground in those three counties don't continue to grow and save that seed, it's going to be lost. Okay. Now, on the other end of the scale, um, as, as a seed company, I'm able to produce pounds and pounds and pounds of tomato seeds that a, you know, a home gardener is just not going to be able to do. And I've, you know, I've got other quality controls that I can do. So it really takes an interaction of all three of them for all of us to succeed. Yeah, I agree. And I also think that there's there's even more than that to it. So if you're going to save your own seed, I think it's a wonderful thing and we should all be doing it. But what ends up usually happening is because of the whole concept of terroir, which is kind of cool, gardeners end up being known for something, right? Mm -hmm. You know, Mrs. Smith's tomatoes. Right. Right. And she might grow five or six varieties of tomatoes, but there might be that one variety of tomato that's her signature tomato and she saves her seeds from that tomato. With my grandfather that was the case. He had hit you know, it was it was actually an old uh burpee uh seed that he bought I think his first round of seed he bought in the fifties, right after World War Two when he came home. Okay. And he but but that was the last packet of those seeds he ever bought. And that was the thing that he saved every year, and he saved his pepper seeds. And we would rely on a seed company for pretty much most other things, but it was those two things that he had refined and continued to select that he, like, if you if you came to our garden and we were going to give you something, you wanted some of his tomatoes or peppers. Right. right. And I think that for a gardener or even a permaculturist, there's going to be certain seed that you want to save and do that with, and other stuff that you're going to be like, this is more, it's a biannual, or it's, <laughs> right. it's you know, there's all these different things, or, broccoli, you know, right. what, ha what have you, and you're going to rely on those companies. The other thing that happens is, nothing stays in stasis for a person that really catches the gardening and permaculture bug, and you always want to try something new. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be paging through these catalogs and websites anyway, going, what's the new variety this year? Right, and you know, and you hit you hit that on the head exactly because I think of our current customer base about three percent save their own seeds. Now wow. you know, and I've got I've got some customers that have their own seed banks, um, and they will only buy from us when they use us as a backup. You know, and they'll call and say, hey, you know. Uh, my Aunt Ruby's is starting to kind of drift, and it's getting a little weird. I'm just going to throw that seed away and start new with you guys again. 
Um, you know, but it, but then there's others. Most of the others are just as you described. You know, they're going to save one or two varieties because that's what is comfortable for a home gardener. And, and I mean, realistically, who is going to save onion or brassica seeds? You know, two years for an onion seed, two years for you know a, a, a broccoli seed. Come on, you know, <laughs> that's that's hard. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that was you know that's a perfect example um, that. I did for my grandfather every year once I moved back to Pennsylvania as a young kid, uh, started all his plants. And we, I would always start the cauliflower, uh, the broccoli, the cabbage. Those would all be started from seed that we would order every year. Mm-hmm. And he was even of the impression that, like, it's so damn affordable, we'll order fresh seed every year. Right. You know? Right. You know, I mean, that, that was it. And it, I think my grandfather kind of instilled in me as well, like, if you want companies to be there, then you have to do business with them or they won't. Right. And he was a huge Burpee fan, but I think that, you know, Burpee is kind of like a big, huge company today that has some associations that some folks in the industry are really not comfortable with. But this was also, you know, 1982. Right. Uh, it was a different time. Well, and it's interesting to see. I mean, we've got a few varieties of Burpee that Burpee developed in 1901, 1902. You know, so they're obviously heirloom. They're open pollinated. Burpee doesn't carry them anymore. Yeah, you know, because and some of they do are still in that. I mean, like mortgage lifter tomato is a perfect example. That was developed right. in the thirties. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Radiator Charlie. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So when, absolutely. When we look at this, I think a lot of times people are looking at like just saving versus the quality of the seed, and and maybe you could go in kind of the difference there and, and why they should really care. Sure. And, and this is something. Um, we've done an article in the January issue, this month's issue of Acres USA, um, and it's what this is kind of the catalyst for all this. Um, we've developed this presentation, and this is also being developed into a, a class because there's a lot of attention today on seed saving, and and saving seeds is physically pretty easy, but there's a whole lot of backstory that if you aren't aware. You're, you're going to save those seeds. Next year, you're going to plant them. You're going to get confusing or disappointing results, and you're not going to have a basis in understanding why whatever it is fizzled, whether it's you're trying to save seeds from a hybrid, um, whether you're, you know, there, there's a lot of things to, to look at in there. So when you, when you take a step back from seed saving, you land on seed quality, and that's where you look at the aspects of germination, the growth, the health, pest and disease resistance of the plant, the food production, um, getting mature seed. Um, so this is where we really kind of take a look at, and this is where people are really responding to, oh, okay, so that's why this didn't work, you know, or, or possibly. And so when you have a little bit of basis and understanding in the seed quality at that point, your decisions on what seed to save are a lot easier it's easier to choose higher quality seed from seed exchanges, whether it's your garden club or Seed Savers Exchange, because you can ask some few basic questions and go, okay, yeah, they know what they're doing, or oof, this person has no clue, you know. Um, and so your choices are better. It's the same thing with a seed company. You can take a look at a seed company. You can take a look at the catalog, their website, and see the information presented and go, okay, yeah, this is a seed company I want to do business with because they're answering the right questions. Um, so, you know, it's kind of like you don't have to know how to repair the car, but if you understand that there are no, you know, left-handed brake resonators, you're not going to get taken. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um on this too though, like we just went over like why home gardeners probably aren't gonna save all their seeds. Um, you know, and they're always going to probably order some stuff every year or trade for some stuff every year or buy some stuff every year. So if that's the case, then then why save what you do save? Why save seeds at all? Partly, you know, one of the best best reasons is exactly what you had said of, of you know, a gardener becomes known for a certain, a certain variety. Um, you know, and, and you look at Aunt Ruby's German green tomato, you know, it brought over from, from Germany, grown in northern Tennessee for 200 years, almost lost, you know, and then it was donated to Sea Savers Exchange and they, and they brought it back. Um, part, of, part of the reason for working with, with heirlooms and open pollinated is their adaptability. And, and, you know, this is something that kind of gets lost in the bigger conversation sometimes because just like you were saying about your dad with the tomatoes and peppers, and that's part of the whole terroir is, sure, they were burpees, tomatoes and peppers to begin with, but three to four years later, they were granddad's peppers and tomatoes. You know, they had adapted sometimes slightly, sometimes a lot to the particular garden situation that they were in. And so the flavors were probably a little better. The production was better. The germination was better. Pest and disease resistance, all this kind of thing. Okay, so now you have these wonderful characteristics. Why wouldn't you want to save that? You know, why wouldn't you want to continue that? Because that becomes a regionally adapted seed. Well, absolutely. And I think that there's there's a lot. There's the, there's the, there's the flavor and the unique thing, but there's also that regional adaptation, right? <coughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and and too many times we overlook some of the, I guess, the less obvious benefits of the heirloom and open pollinated varieties because what we're you know what you and I and you know everybody alive today are standing at, we're looking at the end result of you know sometimes a hundred, sometimes two and three hundred years of adaptation, of seed saving over, you know, any, and I love to look at vegetable history. You take a look at the tomatoes. Well, the tomatoes, if you were to go to Italy prior to 1500, you're not going to have tomato sauce. It didn't exist there because tomatoes did not exist in Italy prior to about 1510, 1500, okay, because tomatoes came from Central America. So did peppers worldwide, Okay. Then you look at some of these varieties, and, and like the Cosmonaut Volkov tomato, okay, or the Black Crim tomato is, is an ex- excellent example. So you have this tomato that came from South America, Central America, over to Europe, was considered a poison for a long time, eventually migrated to the Ukraine, at the southern Ukraine, at the, the island of Krim, that's like Phoenix, it's 110 degrees in the summer, okay, develops this black skin, and then as families immigrated and traveled into Germany, into Western Europe, and eventually in America. Now, 100, 150 years later, we have this tomato <clears throat> that um, has spent the last two centuries experiencing a hundred different climates, and every single generation, it proved itself worthy to be saved from the home gardener, you know, from grandmother, from mom, no supermarkets around, they were having to feed themselves off their home garden. So if the varieties didn't prove themselves and weren't productive and delicious and hearty, they didn't save seed. They didn't have the luxury of it. 
So we're at the end result of all of this unconscious plant breeding, if you will, some of it conscious, seed saving, all of these trials. So what we have to select from today are the absolute most proven varieties. They're going to do great just about anywhere. And, and people kind of forget that with heirlooms. Yeah, I, th- I think people really do. Um, I, I, I think that they also kind of forget the 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 concept of heirloom is uh, a reoccurring one that we have these old heirloom varieties like your 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 family might have an heirloom brooch or something that came from great grandma or right. in my case we have an heirloom that is and highly contested by all family members as to you know who gets it next uh <laughs> it, it, which is a cast iron uh griddle from the Ukraine okay uh and, and that's an heirloom in our family but unlike that like it won't become a new heirloom we i can't take somebody else's heirloom and really turn it into a new heirloom with seeds we can do that when right. we when we start doing this seed saving and proving out of our own varieties it actually becomes relatively quickly highly adapted to who we are if you think like if i buy a, a cast iron griddle today 10 years from now no one really cares right it's not anything unique or special but if i grow the same variety of something for 10 years it is special and right. with some crops, it's conceivable that I could do two generations in a season, and that's a 20-generation thing. Mm-hmm. And that's that's pretty unique, right? Right, because when you're stabilizing a cross, and, and for instance, uh, some of the tomatoes, some of the little pear tomatoes that we have are open-pollinated but not heirloom because they're only 7 to 10 years old. Um, but it took... Um, minimum seven generations, um, sometimes as many as 15, to stabilize it. So what you're saying is exactly right. Ten years down the road, especially if you can do double crops, you've got 20 generations. You have got a new variety. You've got the Jack Spearco jalapeno pepper. Correct. I just remember you love the jalapenos. Yeah. So you've got the Spearco pepper, okay, and it's got these particular characteristics that you have selected for. And so it's unique to you, and it's unique to your area. Now, does that mean that it won't grow elsewhere? No, of course not, but it's going to have different characteristics, maybe a little different flavor earlier or later season or or whatever you've selected for. That's the characteristics it's going to have, so it's going to be a little different than anything else on the market. Yeah, and I mean, and that that is a perfect example that I've been working with uh, a, a certain jalapeno now for seven years. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, I always keep a reserve of seed because I had a terrible result last year because right after I got my peppers in the ground, we got like this ridiculous hailstorm. <laughs> uh, and okay. I got very poor production, but I still have that seed line uh, in play. But, you know, people taste them and they think like this is this awesome jalapeno and they get really big and they have these thick walls and they, they turn red way quicker than, you know, most peppers do. And you get that sweetness and they're like, wow, this is an incredible pepper. What is it? It's jalapeno M. That's okay. all it is. That's all, but it's something that we've worked with for a long time. Well, and it's funny because I, I offer the jalapeno M, and I can almost guarantee that if we were to grow them side by side, they're not going to have. They're going to be completely different. They're going to be very different, especially. <laughs> excuse me. The one of the traits I save for because I really like red jalapenos is I save seeds from the largest peppers that turned red early, and I've done that for six years. Right, right. And, and that's – I do that because, let's face it, I can get a decent jalapeno at a million – I'm in Texas. You right, know, if you right. throw a jalapeno pepper <laughs> on the ground right now, 
somewhere in the woods and you come, you know, at the edge where it gets some sun and come back this, this fall, there'll probably be a pepper plant there with peppers on it. Right. But buying red jalapenos is difficult because nobody wants to let them go that long on the plant. Right. So that's why we selected for that. And that's, that's, that's just one example of what can be done. Now, one of the keys though, is when I'm buying, you kind of alluded to this already, when I'm buying my seeds from a company, I want to get quality to start out with. If I'm going to take all this time to work on the genetics and, and the characteristics of a, a seed variety, I don't want to start out with crap. I want to start out with something good. So how do I identify companies that are selling quality seed in the first place? Um, look at what they say. Look at what the information they provide. Um, there's... There's three three different models in the seed industry, um, and and from from smallest to largest, the the smallest model is you grow absolutely everything you sell. That becomes a self limiting prospect because if you physically don't grow it, you don't offer it. Um, you know, and, and unless you've got a staff of a hundred people, um, you know, it, it becomes impossible. So those are necessarily going to be very, very small companies, sole proprietorships. And they're very proudly going to say on their website and their catalog, I grow everything that I offer. Um, they're going to be open to questions. Um, you know, How do you grow your seeds? Where do you grow your seeds? What's your germination rate? They're going to have no problem answering these kind of questions. because, And it's the same thing with me. I welcome those kind of questions because that tells me I've got a customer who's thinking who's interested in the quality, not just, well, gee, your, you know, your seeds are three fifty a pack, but I can go down to Walmart and get them at $0.49 cents a pack. Okay, you know what? <laughs> you need to go to Walmart because you are not my customer. You're yeah. not, you do not understand what I go through to grow these ne- seeds. Next year, after you use those seeds, you might be my customer. <laughs> right, <laughs> if you wake up a little more, right. Yeah. The next model is what we do. We don't have the land or the staff to be able to grow all of our own varieties. We do grow some stuff. We do very well with some peppers. We do really well with melons here. And I'll grow one melon. I, you know, the green machine is one of the things we've grown. So that's the only melon I will grow. Um, so there's no possibility of uh, cross-contamination or cross-pollination. Um, but we contract with seed growers. Um, I'm, we're, we're lucky enough to have a couple of recognized industry experts who are mentors for us, who grow seed for us. Um, prefer to remain anonymous, but you know we're very fortunate to, to work with these people. They're seed breeders, um, uh, also chefs. You know, so we get the whole the whole mixture there. We we get to visit their farms. We get to see problems. Um, Melrose pepper a couple of years ago was just becoming kind of crossed up and and really kind of drifting. We pulled it off the market for three years, did selection trials on it to get it back to what it should be, the, the definition of a Melrose pepper. And I can say very comfortably now I've got the best Melrose pepper on the market. Um, just because heirlooms inevitably want to drift, they want to adapt, and sometimes you have to corral that. So we don't buy from seed warehouses. We don't buy from seed brokerage firms. uh, We don't buy from wholesalers because we know our growers directly. We visit the growers. I've got an Amish uh, farmer in in Wisconsin who's starting to grow beans for us. Um, And it's an educational process because they've done hybrids for a long time. So he knows how to grow. Um. But he, you know, he doesn't have experience with the open pollinated and, and how to uh, save the seeds and that sort of thing. So this is going to be probably a five-year process with him, but that's fine. 
the the biggest model, and this is what you see a lot of people jump into starting to sell seeds with, is you know last week they're selling Nike shoes or electronics or whatever. Uh, last week, last month, last year. This year it's heirloom seeds because they're really popular, and they'll go buy uh, from a wholesaler or brokerage house, this kind of thing. Um, they're going to have an unlimited uh, inventory because they can just buy more seed, but they don't know anything about growing. They don't understand selection. They don't understand quality. They can't tell you where that seed was grown. Um, they're just going to basically be reading off of the description. So you've got you know you've got these three different sizes. Your best seed is going to come from. Um, yeah, your best seed is going to come from your sole proprietors and the companies that that grow or use their own growers. Yeah, I I, I agree with that. At least they can tell you who their grower is. That that's kind of my thing. You know, if I ask you where does this particular seed come from, and you say, oh well, we 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 get it from you know whoever has it. That's right. That's a poor indicator for me right. that you're concerned with quality. Right. Um, it doesn't mean I won't ever do business with you, but if I have the choice between you and somebody else for a particular variety and that other person can say, we have a grower in Missouri that does this for us, they've mm-hmm. been doing it for right. a long time, and, and, and they've proven out this strain pretty well, and, and we keep an eye on it, I, and i got to pay two bucks more for 100 seeds uh, from you versus the guy that's like, well, wherever I can get it, I'm throwing down the two bucks. And right. I think that unless you're buying seed to plant 40 acres – This is one of the places where I never even understand when somebody makes a price-based decision versus a quality-based decision. If you're buying 20 varieties of seed and you actually were to spend a full $2 more a packet uh, to buy higher quality, which is probably not going to happen... Um, unless you're comparing it to Walmart crap or something like that, which is just that's a totally right. different level of low end, <laughs> right? Then you're talking about forty bucks. Well, if you're buying twenty varieties, it's probably a pretty big garden, and you've probably got a lot more than forty bucks of time, money, and energy invested in it. And the shortcut at that la- layer, after you've done all this other work to improve soil and everything like that, it just doesn't make sense to me. Right. Well, and and one you know taking that thought one step further. <clears throat> Um, are you going to use absolutely all of those seeds you buy this year? No. Okay, so then no. now you've got probably at least two years' worth of seed. So that extra 40 bucks now becomes $20 over two years. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that the, I, I have hardly ever used a full pack of seed unless it's large seed that I'm doing for large production, like Peas and beans would often be the case that you know I'd buy multiple packs and plant all of them, especially if I'm using them for not just production but soil building and something like that. But right, I, or I'll use a lot of lettuce seed um, yeah. because I grow a lot of greens in my greenhouse in the winter, where you use a ton. You're salt and peppering the top of a of yeah a, when you're a doing succession pot. planting, right? Yeah, right. that's that's different. But I mean, if you buy lettuce seed, one packet of lettuce seed, and you're growing you know romaine or head lettuce or something like that. Oh my God, you're not. Right. You're not if you're growing a full size plant. There's no way, uh, unless you're a lettuce farmer, you're using right. a whole pack of seeds. Well, yeah, I mean, with five, you know, like we have 500 seeds of, you know, around 500 seeds because we do it by volume. You know, it's literally a scoop, a little measuring scoop. Sure. And we did 500 seeds just because you're, it, it gives a customer really good value, um, and you want to move the, you know, you want to move your inventory. You don't want to have, you know, lettuce seed for 10 years. 
but at the same time, you don't want to have this little teeny tiny scoop, you know. So there's there's some factors in there, and, and yeah, you're right. Okay, great. You know, here's 500 lettuce seed succession plant a lot. You know, feed your chickens, feed your goats. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and they like it. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. Well, what we usually end up with is a head or two that just you you you're, you get so much of it at one time, it doesn't store well. We're not selling it. You get one that just starts to go away from you a little bit and bolt as you're doing cut and come again. And mm-hmm. at that point, we cut it off at the roots, and it goes to the birds and and uh, you know the geese and the chickens. And man, they they tear it up. They love it. Oh, they party on that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so is this difficult? I mean, people talk about it all the time, and I think that in the especially the prepper niche, it's been made overly simplistic. Buy my ammo can full of seeds. And it's right. heirloom, and you'll never have to buy seeds again, and you can just save them, and it's more, you've got to buy this instead of hybrids and GMOs, because you can save your own seed, and it produces true to type, and it's like the truth and a lie all wrapped up in one big pile of crap. <laughs> because no, you know, no one that buys those things is ever going to save all the seed in there. And even when they're packaged well, you and I both know that a lot of, like, the alliums, it, at two year years, they're not yeah. germinating right. at maybe more than 10%. Right. Uh, so people then, when they try it and it doesn't work for them or what have you, they get to feel like it's difficult. So is it really difficult to save your own seed, or is it more about you know knowing the process and picking your battles, so to speak? It's I, I liken gardening um, as any essential perishable skills. Um, it's it's no different than learning how to how to skin and and you know gut an animal after you've hunted it's no different than learning how to hunt or combat shoot um yeah you know if you watch um you know if you watch a navy seal team stack at the door and then do a hard entry and you try to put yourself in there okay that's impossible but you know what if you start at the beginning with with uh, you know all of the schools and all of the training and you work up to that. At that point, it becomes second nature. It's just like learning, you know, to sharpen a knife or fire a gun. Seems intimidating at first. So you start small. You know, you start in your garden. You start small. You start with simple, easy things. Um, beans, lettuce, peas are pretty much the easiest thing to get started with. Anytime somebody says, "Well, you know, I'd like to learn how to save seed, but I'm a little, I'm a little concerned." Um, do some reading. Uh, beans are your absolute best thing to start with. They're what they call p- perfect or self-pollinating flowers, meaning by the time the flower opens, that bean has already been fertilized. So unless the bees have absolutely nothing else to eat and they're forcing their way into the flowers, which is really <laughs> rare, yeah, those those beans, you know, you can have them in rows next to each other, and you're really not going to have cross-pollination. And, you know, and saving beans is easy. You just wait for the pod to dry, uh, clip it off, put it in a bag, wait till the, you know, it's brittle dry, crunch them, get your beans, there you go. You've got seeds for next year. i got to um, tell you, in some instances with beans, I don't even do that. Like, I'll just <laughs> leave a couple of vines sit out there, and they sit out in the rain and everything, and I go out in the spring when I'm cleaning up a bed or a fence line, and I pull the dry pods off and shove them in the ground, and... You know, do they all grow? I don't even know because there's so many leftovers hanging out there that enough of them grow. And and one thing about that, that's going to be tough seed. That's going to be highly adapted. And in, in one of the things that I like about your approach and the things that you talk about, especially in gardening, but in permaculture and everything else, is is the common sense, let's take a look at what nature does. 
because that's pretty much as close to perfect as you're going to get, and let's try to replicate that. And so that's exactly what you're doing with, you know, let the beans just overwinter. You know, they have all the, the freeze-thaw cycles. It doesn't get any more natural than that. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is definitely, uh, especially if you're going to keep it in one area for a couple of years, yeah, don't, you know, you can save a lot of time and effort and energy, and then at the end of the two years, if you're going to move your beans to the next row, then you, you know, you collect the seeds. And, yes, you're, you're getting some serious adaptation right there. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not saying I do that with all the beans or, no, or right. field peas or anything like that, but it just it just always ends up the case that you get into fall and things start to die from frost and stuff like that, and you end up doing things like killing chickens and things that take you away from the garden. It's not the most high productive time. You're maybe focusing on the area where you're growing some greens and brassias now, right, right. and that just gets kind of ignored, and then you go back there in the spring and you're like, I bet that'll grow. Right, and I've taken it where I've taken the whole pod, just buried the pod, mm-hmm. and that's how nature would do it. Right, and, exactly. Well, and, and it's it's amazing how this works. And like another thing that should give people confidence is every one of us out there has had like a pepper or a tomato fall on the ground and get mulched <laughs> over, and then next spring you get this volunteer, and if you leave it alone, you're putting your starts in, and they're twice as big as this little thing coming out of the ground. And by mid season, that's like your toughest plant. Right. And it's 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 pretty uh evident that that's basically nature saying, Look, I know how to do this. Right. Get right. And mind. I think that one of the things I caution people with in my presentations when I get into seed saving about buying these seed banks and the special preservation methods and all of this is a you know, cool, dry environment, clean seed, things like that are all important, but in the end, nature has made the seed very resilient, at least for one to two seasons, all by itself. Right, right. And we can overthink it, and we're vacuum-sealing stuff. And my grandfather, with the seed lines I'm talking about, stored them in little brown envelopes. And I probably wouldn't advise somebody to do this today, right? But this is what he did. He had a workbench out in the shanty um, that would be really cold sometimes and really hot sometimes and certainly not climate-controlled in any way. And above it was a cabinet. And a cigar box. And he put his seeds in these envelopes, and he wrote the year on it, and he put them in that cigar box, and he stuck them up there. He did that every year when he'd save the seed in the fall, and then we would do our starts around February-ish for Pennsylvania in a cold frame, and he would go up there and grab that box down and pull seed out of it. And that was the whole thing. That was it. Well, and what, you know, when you talk about it, we overthink it too much. I I always like to look at history. And for... You know, depending on which ethnobotanist you talk to, for twelve to fourteen thousand years, that's exactly how we've survived in an agricultural society. You know, freezers didn't exist a hundred years ago. Refrigeration didn't exist a hundred years ago. So, you know, what were the Native Americans doing? What were you know all of the peoples wandering around Europe and Africa and the rest of the world? That's exactly what they were doing. They were Growing and saving enough seed for two to three years so that if you lost a crop, you know, lost a planting, you, you have enough to replant, but you're using it within a couple of years. So, you know, unless you're doing a seed bank for long-term seed storage, yeah, don't make it complicated. I think there's even limits to that, you know, the seed banks. Like we were talking about alliums, you, you're – and uh, anything under than like laboratory-level freaking – perfection alliums are just 
notorious for their seed not storing for very long. Right. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and, and that's why I don't remember how many, I think we do 100 seeds per onion, or, or we, I think we may do 500, I don't remember, but, um, and, and that's the whole reason, you know, is because the second year the germination just tanks. So we need to, we need to, to grow enough quantity to make it worthwhile for our growers so we have a large quantity, we need to move that along. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, you know, what are some of the things people should be doing from a standpoint of when they start saving their own seeds, what can they do to improve their quality and diversity? There's some things, we're going to go through some terms and techniques and, and things to, to kind of understand, and this is just going to open your eyes to some of the backstory on saving seed. Um, there's a little difference between growing for seed and growing for food. Um, they can be similar, but not always. When you're looking at vegetables, um, and, I, and I always talk about tomatoes because everybody's familiar with tomatoes and tomato seeds, is fully mature tomato seeds are in an overripe, non-edible fruit. And, and again, going back to thinking about how the natural system works, if you were to watch a tomato fruit ripen, and when it falls to the ground, that fruit then rots, and you've got the gel coat that is designed to withstand the digestive system of animals because the fruit is just the dispersion method for the seeds. And then that seed goes through the winter in, you know, a, a pile of dung or, you know, covered in leaves or whatever, freeze-thaw cycles, and then comes up. Um, so the overripe fruit is going to have your most mature seeds. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, somebody gives you a, a, a tomato and you're like, man, this is great, and you, you can't save seed from it. You know, there's always there's always a good chance there, but for the best best results. Um, you know, it can be as simple as tagging a few tomatoes on a plant, you know, tying some string around them or a bow or whatever and going, okay, these three tomatoes we're saving, we can eat the rest of them, you know, letting them get overripe and then saving seeds from that. Others, like lettuces, okay, fine, we've got a 10-foot row of lettuce, we're going to eat off of, you know, everything else but these two plants. These two plants we're going to let go to seed and we're going to collect seed from it. So some of the things we have to look at, and, and one of the biggest things is the population, and the technical term is minimum viable population. Basically what that means is what's the least, what's the fewest amount of plants needed to avoid a genetic bottleneck, which means the loss of diversity, the loss of adaptability um, for that variety. Sometimes minimum genetic or minimum viable population becomes difficult for a home gardener. This goes right back to those three layers that I was talking about. This is where the home gardener and the seed exchange really become important. For instance, the rule of thumb for outcrossing plants like tomatoes, you need 100 plants as a minimum viable population. Now, inbreeding ones like peppers are 20. Okay, now who in their right mind is going to grow 100, a minimum of 100 of one type of tomato just to save seed? That's where seed companies come in. Okay, but how can a home gardener do it? Maybe you plant 10 tomato seed or tomato plants. You collect the seeds from those plants. Now, you're going to get a lot more seed than you need. So, in your gardening club, in your local regional seed exchange, in an area, you swap these. Okay, I got black cream, you got black cream. Great, we had a great year. Let's swap some seeds. Okay, so that starts to eliminate 
that genetic bottleneck because now when you start exchanging these, you're getting to that minimum population you need without you having to physically grow all of them. Does that make sense? Well, that makes perfect sense. And I think it's something that people don't usually think about when they swap seed. Um, every time we run an event here, I say bring seed for the seed swap. And you see people all the time with the same variety going, oh, well, I don't need any of that. I don't need any of that. And I, I've never really thought about encouraging them to do it. I mean, it makes sense to me. I know I do it every once in a while. Like even with my peppers, I bring in a couple plants that are from new genetics and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll do it by buying seeds sometimes or somebody has some seed as long as I know it's the same base variety. Right. Um, and that makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah, and it and what happens, um, you know, if if you can do it in an area, you know, and you're in in the Dallas Fort Worth area, and so you you know, there's there's a, you know, there's a lot of gardeners there, and so you 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 get in that Dallas Fort Worth, so you what you wind up happening, let's just talk the black crim tomato, is you get the North Dallas black crim tomato, you know, because you've got 20 gardeners that are kind of participating in this exchange. And swapping, basically swapping genes. And it's the same thing if you were breeding sheep or dogs or horses. You know, you're, you're gonna swap, okay, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I need the offspring of this one and I wanna mate it with this one because I don't wanna have, you know, a, in, you know, too much inbreeding. I wanna have a goat with four ears. Right. You know, and so, and this is why I go back to the home gardeners of the basis because when you look at any of these, not any, but most of these heirlooms, look at the names. Okay, typically it's named for a mother or a grandmother because typically the women were the ones doing the gardening, providing you know the vegetables and, and that type of food. But some somebody in that family decided that this particular variety was important enough to really put some effort to and save, and that their name gets attached to it. Okay. Um. Rarely, you know, are you going to see, you know, the burpee tomato or, you know, the Monsanto whatever, you know, to to go at the far other far end of the extreme. But very often it's an individual person's name, and and that tells you, you know, it's not companies or corporations that are typically starting this whole seed saving and this whole um, traditional plant breeding. It's individuals. So that's why home gardeners are so important to this. Um, the next thing we need to look at is isolation and selection. And Jack, you've talked quite a bit about selection. Um, you know, in, in that it, it's just such a nice segue. Isolation just means keeping two similar varieties, like two similar tomatoes or peppers or you know corn outcrosses like crazy, from cross pollinating, so that you have the same variety. There's three different methods. There's time, distance, and physical methods. Time is one of the easiest things to do. For instance, if you have an early tomato and a late tomato or an early melon and a late melon or peppers or whatever, um, you'll plant the early variety early and the late a little bit later so that they're not flowering at the same time so that they cannot cross-pollinate each other. In that way, you can grow two peppers that would cross-pollinate and save seed from two different varieties instead of being limited to one as a home gardener. Distance is easy enough. You just as much distance as possible. The thing that I always caution people is make sure you understand your wind patterns. 
here where I'm at, uh, most of the time it's from the southwest, um, so that's kind of how you plan. But you have to recognize that, you know, not just from the southwest, you'll have it from the north, you'll have it from the east. So you have to take that into account when you're looking at distance. Understand some pollens travel a lot more than than others. Um, the USDA says corn pollen will travel a quarter mile, so that's their isolation distance. That's complete and total falseness because when Dr. Chapella was studying GMO contamination in the corn in Oaxaca, there was GMO corn being planted in the valley of Oaxaca, and the prevailing winds are, are from the west going east. So in the mountains to the east where traditional corn culture, they've never bought corn in the history of man, and they maintain three to 500 varieties. And he was seeing GMO contamination 20 miles away because of the winds. So you do have to be, you know, understand a little bit about that. But simple things like your beans, uh, your peas, your lettuce, you don't have to worry about that. Physical isolation gets more into breeding. That's where you're putting um, paper bags over your pumpkins or your squash. That's where you're putting pollen bags over your corn. Um, sometimes people just are more comfortable with, like our breeder was when she was uh, developing the chocolate pear tomato, she'd have them in isolation cages. So they completely excluded any other pollen or bugs or anything. She did have to go in and hand pollinate everything, but that's part of the process of breeding. So realistically, the home gardener is going to look mostly at time and some at distance. Um, going into selection, and that's, that's exactly what you were talking about with your jalapeno M. You selected for an early, large, red, uh, particular taste variety of jalapeno. That's positive selection. Uh, mm -hmm. negative selection is also called roguing. You probably did this as well as you, you know, you had all your jalapeno plants going and everything's three feet tall and you got two of them that are foot tall. You yank those things yep. because you don't yep. want those genes affecting. Okay. That's negative selection or Cut roguing. Cut them right off at the ground. Right. Or if everything's got, you know, purple flowers and two of them have yellow flowers, you know, in it, that if you have the space and the time and the energy, that may become a breeding experiment. What happens here? Let's isolate these two and see what happens, or you yank them. So that's negative selection. So what happens is with, you know, you, you start off with a good population. You've got some decent isolation. You understand that. You do some selection. Uh, you wind up with these seeds. What do you do now? Okay, next is germination testing and trialing. Germination testing just means you let them dry completely. Many seeds have to age for a couple of weeks, sometimes a couple of months. So go back to tomato seeds. You let them age for a month to two months, and then you just put them in a wet paper towel, and you know you, you put like 10 seeds in a wet paper towel and see how many germinate um, over a week. You should have 10, 9 or 10. Um, that tells you that you've got good germination and good vigor. Um, if you have three or four, that tells you that you've got some issues without going to the trouble of planting next year, only to discover, wow, I have no tomatoes this year. Um, trialing just means growing out the next year. So these tomato seeds, you've got a 95%, 100% germination rate. You plant them the next year. And you get the results you're looking for. Okay, yes, they're black crims. Man, these are wonderful. They're early. They're you know they're tasty. They're man. The insects left them alone. That's that's the final proof 
of your seed-saving efforts, and that really tells you the quality of what you're doing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, when people look at doing this, where can they learn more uh, about doing it? Because we can only give them so much today. Are there some maybe some great, great, good resources that they uh, they can use? Yes, one, one of the there, there's some some resources that, that I'll pass along. Um, um, but but one of the very first ones that I would start with, and, and people may kind of overlook this, um, is TSP, the forum. Um, the gardening forums there um, are are really good. There's uh, a number of folks that, that do save some seeds and have some good experiences and are not afraid to talk about their failures so that everybody else can learn from them. Um, I've talked about Seed Savers Exchange. Um, they're in Decorah, Iowa. And uh, we'll pass along uh, websites for everything. A, a couple of them that we use as a seed company because it's more in-depth for those that want it are called GRIN. It's the Germplasm Resources Information Network. It's part of the USDA. Um, it's technical. It's a lot of detailed information. Um, another one is called Plants for a Future. Um, and we'll pass that along. Books, there's three books that we, we really turn to. One of them is called Seed to Seed by Suzanne Ashworth. This is pretty much the industry standard for, I think, 20 years now. Um, she's got regional uh, adaptations, regional notes, uh, not just seed saving, but planting and germination information. Uh, the Complete Guide to Saving Seeds, uh, Robert and uh, Cheryl. Uh, it's a newer book. It's more visual, uh, very good. It's, um, seed to Seed is more for a verbal or word-oriented learner. The Complete Guide is more for a uh, visual. There's a lot of pictures. There's a lot of graphs in that. Both of them are very good. A brand new one, and this is a little more in-depth. It's geared more towards a seed grower but it really gives you an insight into seed quality. It's called The Organic Seed Grower by John Navazio. Um, it's um, kind of the Bible. Um, it's, I think it's only been out about a year now, but it's uh, really, really in-depth. So the nice thing is 10, 15 years ago, you didn't have the Internet. You didn't have the freedom of information, the, the flow of information we do now. Um, gardeners today have so much of an advantage it makes it uh, a lot easier. Yeah, absolutely. What are some of the things people really need to know to get started, though? Are there any things like, you know, absolute minimum things people need to know? Um, the biggest thing is have some patience. Um, don't overthink it. Start small. And pester the heck out of folks that have some knowledge and experience. Um <laughs> You know, and, and be prepared to make mistakes. I mean, you know, you're going to kill some plants. You're going to, you know, you're, you're going to have some failures. Um, a garden journal uh, is a really good resource because three to five years from now, you're not going to remember what happened or what went well, what went wrong. Uh, you're going to have a vague idea. And it's not like you have to write every day in the garden journal, but, you know, it, it weather patterns or insects or if you had, you know, a really hot heat spell and this particular tomato made it through it, you want to document that kind of stuff because when you go back and look at it and go, oh, yeah, this is, okay, this is why this is happening and, and you can make a, a more educated approach. Um, 
observation is one of the biggest things is just spend a little time every day, 10 minutes in your garden and sit quietly, watch, um, look, observe what's going on, uh, how the plants are doing, see, you know, you'll see insects come in from one end of the garden and then you can see them move through and just all of these different patterns. And once you start understanding that a little more, you're going to be a little more in tune and a little more understanding of what's going on. You're going to make better choices. I agree with that. I would add to that. I think that one of the biggest things, and I think this applies to everything, but when people start you know, messing around with saving seeds and stuff like that, they have a tendency to sometimes blame failure on seed, whether it's seed they bought or seed they saved, when it's not the case. I think that the biggest ignored factor, especially by new gardeners, is the quality of the soil and the soil life. Oh, absolutely. I can't disagree with that at all. You kind of open with that, but I think that people really need to think about deep mulching, uh, layered mulching, sheet mulching, adding organic matter, getting, you know, uh, I think that every gardener should be composting, but I also think that every gardener should have a worm bin. Mm -hmm. Um, Frankly, unless you have chickens or something like that to process your small amounts of vegetable waste and all, it doesn't really make sense to try large-scale composting with this output that comes out of our kitchen, you know, we have a, it looks like a little waste can. Mm-hmm. It's on our countertop. It's probably holds about as much as like one of those big coffee containers, the big plastic ones Folgers comes in. Sure. Which is actually what we used to use before my wife said it wasn't pretty, so it wasn't good enough. <laughs> and I put, I fill about one of those a week with, you know, and we use a lot of vegetables with eggshells and stuff like that. And we do kind of reserve it for composting, but it's because we produce a huge pile of straw every time we, you know, clean out the chicken coop and we have that large quantity of stuff and we don't try to really compost the kitchen waste as it's produced. We just kind of layer it mm-hmm. and we don't want it breaking down. We want it like reserved and when we build that big pile, that's just another amendment that goes into it. But I think for a lot of home gardeners, they, you know, they don't have a chicken coop and they certainly don't have a chicken coop with, you know, 20 birds in it like we do. Right. Uh, you know, and geese that really kind of add a lot of organic matter, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. So a worm bin just to me is the natural way to deal with that ongoing small amount of, of, uh, waste and worm castings. Are the most amazing <laughs> garden fertilizer, and if you can be producing castings from compost worms, and attract, and if you're doing that, you're going to be attracting and cultivating in your own soil earthworms. Right. Those two things will bring so much additional life, and we're even experimenting with this year. We're going to be taking two inch PVC, drilling holes in it, putting it down straight into the garden bed, filling it with manure, putting compost worms in there and doing our compost worms straight into the bed. And okay, I think sure. it's things like that that put the worm juice and all of this life in the soil. And no matter how good you are about saving your seed or all these other things, if you don't have healthy soil, you're not going to have the results you're expecting, and you won't have the nutritional density and that unique flavor that's 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 you know, you'll have a unique flavor. It's called bland. Right. right? Well, you want, if you want a unique flavor that's, like, flavorful, you want this healthy soil because it's the mineral richness. It's the biological right. diversity that makes that happen. One of the things that we've really seen, and, and it was funny because after you started talking about hookah culture a little more, there's 
there's a, a common, and I'd have to call it a misconception at this point from, from my reading and research about, oh, you don't want to put wood chips in a, in a garden bed. You don't want to put wood chips in a compost because they, they, it takes too much nitrogen you know, while they're breaking down, and it takes too long to break down and you know, this kind of thing. And my research and study of Russian dacha gardening and the whole Russian ag- agricultural methods uh, really kind of broke that, that concept. But the thing that, that really proved it to me was, was here in, uh, in Arizona. We've got a friend who's got a, a goat ranch, a 4,000-acre goat ranch. And they have this, I don't know, this thing had to have been probably 20 to 30 cubic yards of wood chips uh, from the, the, the power company as they were trimming trees. And it's on um, probably at least a half a mile of decomposed granite in all directions. And this thing had sat there for, um, I don't know, probably five or six years. And when he started the, the, back, the, the back end or the, the backhoe up to, to start moving the chips around, um, the bottom six inches were just writhing with worms. Yep. And, you know, and he, he, he saw it and he thought, oh, man, I got maggots or something, you know, because he was up in the cab and he jumps down and, and bucket's still up in the air and, and he couldn't believe it. And he's, he's telling me this at the, at the foot of this, this compost, you know, this, this wood chip pile. And he shows me, and I mean, it looks, you know, it looks like some of the most, you know, Kentucky bottomland, you know, the yeah. most rich earth. It's amazing smell, and the earth is, you know, the earthworms are there. And I mean, it's just, you know, and, and he does the very first thing that I do. I look around, you know, and I'm going, where in the world did these earthworms come from? You know, this is, this is yeah. decomposed granite. Yeah, they, they surely didn't come up from the bottom. And there's just... The reality is you get birds pecking in there because it's interesting to them. They're mm-hmm. crapping. They're dropping a few eggs from an egg casing here, and then there's a couple in there, and then it just goes. Right, right. And it, it, it's amazing where they end up. What, what, I, what I actually find more amazing than that are the guys that do aquaponics, and all of a sudden they find, you know, they dig out one of their, their grow beds because it's gotten clogged up with a big tomato root ball or something like that, and in the bottom of this gravel or clay you know, uh, matrix, right? Yeah, is these giant ass earthworms? Oh, really? Now I haven't heard like, that. Where the hell did that come from? Wow! And you end up finding from all the fish waste and all at the bottom of your your gravel beds or your clay media beds. Wow! Basically, soil. Wow! And you'll end up with earthworms in there, and you know when you find one, you pitch it into the fish, and they're yeah totally happy about yeah. it. And the beautiful thing about earthworms is as long as they have stuff to exist in. You don't have to really worry about hurting their population. One worm makes a lot of new worms. Right, right. And it is amazing that they show up like that. And and you couldn't be more right about the wood being villainized and being, you know, villainized inappropriately. And I think that the one exception to, like, what you can do with wood to screw everything up is put down a bunch of wood chips and rototill it into the soil. Right. It will. It, it's like mixing sand and gravel and water. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, what do we get? Right. You get really poor quality, but you know, pretty hard concrete. Basically, right. if we add right. you know Portland cement, then we get true concrete. But that's what happens when you take wood chips and you till them into the soil. Right. You get a very hard result. It'll actually get pretty good eventually. But it takes a lot longer. A long time. But if we dig out. Uh, a section completely like a double dig bed or a hugel bed, and we fill that with a solid layer of wood chips and put the soil back over that. Right. We end up with a really great organic matter core and a, and a, and a very simple to, to build hugel culture. And if we put a layer of chips on top, mm-hmm. 
we end up with a great mulch and a great breakdown, and we do not end up with the nitrogen loss that people believe. First of all, it's not gone. No, it's, it's just it's, tied up. Right. It's bound up, and it eventually slow releases back in. So it actually makes available nitrogen available longer. But the reality is the wood chips on the surface can only interact with the soil and bind up nitrogen at that one layer where they make contact. If you have an inch and a half, two inches of wood, the wood chips on the top have absolutely no effect on nitrogen bind-up because they're up at the top and they're dry and they're not capable of it. Right, right. So you only have this very thin layer, and as it as, it, as the wood chips go down, it's taking care of itself because it's releasing back out. Now, I have seen cases where people put too much on, yeah. and you get too deep, and you do get some very unhappy plants. Yeah. But the beautiful thing about that is if you think you're there, pull back the wood a bit, and if it perks up, then you know you're good. Exactly. Well, and, I, and I don't think that long-term you can overdo it. Well, and that's one of the things in this particular study was done in the, in the teens and 20s. Uh, I think it was formalized in the 1930s in uh, southern Russia. And uh, it, it was a, a arid grasslands area. And uh, <clears throat> this one gentleman farmed several hundred hectares. So you're talking 400 acres. And his motto was no bare ground for a day. And he used almost <laughs> exclusively wood chips. The thing, and this is one of the just amazing things with the, the Russian studies, is what they found was the wood chips um, harvested moisture. They har- and, and I think they, if I remember right, the study concluded that, that the wood chips, like three inches of wood chips, harvested the equivalent of about six inches of moisture a year. Mm-hmm. And this is an area that only got 15 inches of rain a year. So sure. half, you know, it's, it's adding, you know, 50% moisture because it acts as a thermal barrier. So in the heat of the day, it keeps the moisture um, underneath. The moisture is able to percolate up from deeper in the soil so the roots have it available. But then when the sun goes down and you have that temperature inversion, it gets cool and the moisture condenses on the wood chips that are then driven into the soil. And they studied that for 20 years. Yeah, I mean, basically you've got an osmotic process there. Right. It's a real basic scientific concept that uh, things move across semi-permeable barriers uh, from areas of lower concentration to greater concentration. So when right. you get that dew drop in the in the evening that you're talking about on wood, and that, that wood has dried out, it mm-hmm. sucks that moisture in, and it will it will become fairly uniform throughout the. So if it's two or three inches of wood, it will become fairly uniform throughout the entire layer. Right. And then in the morning, and the sun comes up, yeah, the top of that wood will dr- dry off due to evaporation. But a lot of the moisture that's in that full layer of wood chips is then going to follow osmosis down into the lesser concentration of the soil and moisten the soil. So it holds it in and and draws it in. Now, the other thing that's like really cool that happens here is in a situation where you get very, very wet soil due to runoff or something like that from a major event is that wood will actually suck moisture back up out of the soil and bind it up. Mm-hmm. And hold it, and some will get lost to evaporation, sure. But what it'll do is keep the soil be from from becoming Water too bottles. anaerobic, from being too wet. Right, right. And well, it it sounds like something mystical. In fact, there's that movie out, that Eden Gardens movie, where the guy makes it sound like it's a really like 
un- I don't know how this happens. Well, right, right. It's, it's, it's osmosis. It's yeah. basic physics, basically. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and I, you know, I I, I did an experiment um, last year. Um, one one of our beds, you know, raised beds in our test garden. Um, I just put a layer of wood chips and nothing else, and we don't. You know, our moisture is snows and, you know, a little bit of snow and then monsoons in June, um, June, July time frame. And, and, uh, when it was, when it was time to plant, we were playing around with it. And the bed that had wood chips, I could make a mud ball, you know, a moist dirt ball. You know, yep. it wasn't, it wasn't dry at all. The other beds that had compost, you know, aged horse manure compost, um, you had to go down two to three inches instead of, you know, an inch of what I put on the wood chips. And the wood chip bed was noticeably moister than in the other beds with no, you know, with no water at all. So it was pretty, it was pretty impressive to see. Yeah, it it really is. But um, if you do that wood chip concept with your worm bed, you know, that was the whole thing yeah. that I was trying to get to. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, but if you, if you add just a simple one inch layer of wood chips on top of your worms and you keep it one to two inches, those worms are going to feed on that wood Yep, and and really accelerate the process. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, they'll eat anything that's pretty much that's organic, other than you know onions. They don't like onions and citrus. It's yeah, t-shirts, newspapers. Yeah, yeah. There's an old saying. I don't remember who said it, but it was basically, and I don't remember the actual saying, but in the end, it was that all life is destined to pass through the belly of a worm, <laughs> including us. That, right. that your final destiny in life is to be fungus food and worm food. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I think we've kind of changed that with modern burial practice, but that's really not on topic, so we'll leave that deal. <laughs> but um, on that note, we are kind of getting to wrap up here, but you know, you do have a company that sells seeds, and I was just wondering, do you have anything unique and new or different this year that you want to talk about that, that's, that's available, hasn't been in the past, or just maybe people aren't aware of it? It's kind of really a cool thing to grow. Um, one of the things that we're having, we're helping to reintroduce a historic wheat um, it's called a white Sonora wheat, um, and this was introduced in the 1600s into Arizona and the Sonoran Desert area. Um, it's planted as a winter wheat where there's no frost, or as a spring wheat where you do get a frost. The nice thing with this is it's got a low gluten content. Um, a lot of people with gluten sensitivities are responding very well to this, um, it, um, it it's not hybridized. It doesn't have all the issues that modern uh, miniature wheat does, um, and and it's really becoming uh, popular with a lot of home gardeners because it's got a very soft um, beard or or ch- shell chaff, so it's very easy to harvest and uh, and pull that that ch- that chaff off without needing a professional mill. Um, so that's one of the really neat things. Um, the Espelette pepper from um, the, the Basque country, um, this is our second year or third year with it. A lot of chefs are growing that. It's like $40 an ounce for the smoked powder, um, but the peppers are hugely prolific. Um, our grower outside of Sacramento produces them for us, and they do very well. So people are pretty excited about that. Um, We've got a few new varieties, but those are kind of the two big ones that are that are happening right now. Um, the cucumelon, it's kind of funny, the permaculture folks like the cucumelon, and that became very popular last year. So we've got all kinds of suburban housewives growing 
cucumelons, which is kind of cool, you know, because they're getting into gardening and, you know, they want them for their drinks and pickles and that kind of thing. But it's, you know, it's a gateway drug. You know, you, you yeah. grow the cucumelons, you have fun with that. All right, let's try maybe a tomato next year, you know. Yeah. Um, a couple things I grew, the one is, the, and I don't know if you're talking about the same thing, the mouse melon. Yes. Uh, those are awesome. I, I could eat about a thousand of those things a day. Um, I think some people really like them. Some people, I, I don't know, don't. But I, I just think they're awesome. Another thing that I've grown from you guys, though, is uh, the popping sorghum, Tara Humara or something like that. Tara Humara, yeah, from the, yeah, the Mexican yeah. Indians. Um, we had really good results with that last year, cool. uh, and we, we didn't grow a lot of any one sorghum. We trialed a few different kinds. We also grew the uh, white African giant okay. uh, and black amber and some other things, and we were looking at it mainly from a standpoint of producing supplemental grain for our birds, uh, and, and the th- this particular popping sorghum really doesn't stand out for that, but that's not what it's supposed to be. But it's really cool to be able to grow this thing it's so low maintenance. It did very well without irrigation. It wasn't in some hugel mounds where we trialed it, but they were first-year hugel mounds built with live oak. So the hugel effect was minimal. Okay. Um, the water harvesting effect of the contour-based beds was was pretty significant, but the hugel effect, you know, you can't really attribute much of that uh, to it doing well in the in the droughty conditions we had this fall or uh, summer. But it's a really cool thing to have a popped sorghum. Did you uh, pop it? Yeah, it's it's awesome. It's it's cool. awesome. It's like little popcorn. Okay. It's not like tiny popcorn, like when you pop amaranth, but it's like small popcorn compared to you know formal red and box sure. or whatever. Sure, right, right. Well, the other neat thing, and I don't know if you saw that, but um, I've got some folks using uh, for soil improvement, especially on a on a harder clay based soil, is the sorghum and um, a sesame um, and sunflower. Um, because they they really drill down and break up that harder soil. Um, in the sorghum and sesame, you can just break the stalks off at the top, and then the roots rot, you know, which starts opening up uh, the soil pretty well. Yeah, I have to say that the root system of a mature sorghum plant, especially your larger varieties of sorghum, like like the, the giant, uh, is unbelievable you you look at it and you look at sorghum growing and corn growing and the plants look very very similar and you wonder to yourself why is this this sorghum so much more drought resistant pull one up Mm -hmm. if you can and you'll see why it's and that is a massive amount of you know what we'd call in permaculture a fast carbon pathway for the exactly Um, and then, you know, if you have any ruminants, they're pretty fond of sorghum cane. If you, cause yeah. I've kind of determined that, you know, small scale production of sorghum, uh, is a, a syrup is a waste of time. Uh, <laughs> if you're not growing a significant amount of it and using a large press, it's probably not worth it. Right, right. But, um, chicken, backyard chicken growers, uh, gardeners will grow the Mennonite sorghum because yep. the seed heads are just, you know, they're like co- uh, co- uh, candy for the birds. Yeah, we grew a lot of that this year, and um, we uh, we 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 you know got some of it off the uh, th- we threshed, I guess. It's okay. For some of it for seed, but most of what we would do with it, we would cut it off of the ground, leave the roots in the ground. We'd cut it, and we threw the canes in with the birds and let them slice it up, and we would just throw them to hull heads. Oh, okay. And, and I I I laugh when I see people harvesting grain for chickens. 
and going through getting it off of the, the stocks <laughs> or whatever. I'm like, they don't – we did some corn. We did some different field corns and stuff like that, and some of it was good for us to use, and some of it was just like, hey, it didn't do really well. You know, half of the head got eaten by worms or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you just – you don't even – hold on. It's a chicken. He knows what to do with a corn head. You throw a whole <laughs> right. corn ear in there, and they would tear it up. And if there was a corn ear worm in there, that's just more protein. And boy. And and I think that I think one of the biggest advantages we have on our new property is the ability to have, you know, some livestock like chickens because they're producing such high quality waste product out of what we would normally have thrown away or taken a long time to compost. Right, right. And then the other thing I'll throw in, this is really nothing to do with our t- talk, but what I mentioned to my wife the other day when we went out to eat at a restaurant is that we waste absolutely no food, including restaurant food now. Because you, you you know you have a to go box and you've kind of killed your main course and there's some rice or veggies or you know they bring you rolls even though you tell them not to mm-hmm. and normally you don't take that stuff because well I don't eat a lot of starch anyway but two stuff like that like you know you go to a restaurant and they bring out those nice fresh rolls I'll eat one every once in a while I'll break and I'll do it mm-hmm. um, and they're great but worn back up they're not like they are when they <laughs> pop them out of the oven but we just load that box up with everything. And then the chickens, you know, do head spins on it. Oh, yeah. So, like, chickens are, like, I think they pre- prevent the waste of a lot of things that otherwise do go to waste uh, by converting it to useful waste. Right, right. Oh, absolutely. So, um, folks, I really shouldn't have any trouble finding your site. We'll have links in the show notes and all. Uh, and you're a member of our support brigade, and you provide our, our guys a discount. I want to point that out for you here toward the end. But just for the p- person that's driving down the road in their car right now listening on their iPod or whatever, and uh, this first time they're exposed to you, how do they find your website? Because we haven't even said that. <laughs> um, the the website URL is underwoodgardens.com, and it's uh, spelled just like it sounds with gardens as plural. When uh, when you hit the website, you're going to see all the information Um Soil building, recipes, seed saving, gardening tips, that sort of thing up front. And then uh, you go into the store to, to actually buy anything. Um, we really look at the holistic cycle of, of uh, you know, from the soil to the seed to the food you eat, um, not just selling seeds and hoping for the best. Very cool, man. Well, I appreciate you with being on today. And I'll also say while you're there, folks, uh, there's a link for Knowledge Library. And there's a ton of information available there. And uh, your newsletter is pretty valuable as far as I'm concerned as well, so I think people should sign up for that. And cool. uh, Thank you. Stephen, man, I appreciate you being with us today, and I appreciate the work you're doing as a, you know, as, as a small business person in, a, in an industry that's seen a resurgence, but it needs good companies like yours to continue to grow and develop and to get us back to where we need to be. I, rem- I have in my presentations that I do on this, the biggest reason to save seeds, I have this graphic, and I'm going through all this stuff on permaculture and gardening and all, and all of a sudden there's this three pennies, and a dollar. And people think, what, is this guy switched to something on the Federal Reserve or something? <laughs> and the way I explain it is if we had a seed catalog in, in, in the 1800s, that that dollar represented all the seeds that were available uh, through all different small producers throughout the world, that that three pennies uh, up till about 20 years ago, 1990, was all that we had left. Right. And, and that's such a good explanation. I like that. And, and today we're up to about a nickel to six cents, which right. is encouraging. But boy, do we have a long way to go, and it's companies like yours that are helping us get back the diversity that we've lost, and, and frankly, making people value it again. Right. Uh, right. So I appreciate the work you guys have done, Steve. Well, absolutely. Thanks so much. I've, I've uh, 
you know, this is something that I value your community because, uh, you know, it's a thinking it's a thinking person's community, and uh, it, you know, it's nice to see the commentary and the interactions and uh, y- you know the the questions and the directions and that sort of thing. It's it's um, it's enjoyable to to be part of this community. Well, we're glad to have you as part of it, and folks. With that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Stephen Scott, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Nobody up there cares, they're living for